That was St. Marie Under Cannon by Corner Shop, who provided our theme tune for the past three years. They'll be joining us later to talk about their new album, England as a Garden, and what it's got to say about the merry home of Brexit. But first, welcome to the latest edition of Khomeiniacs, with the news that former Iranian leader Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has come out as a supporter of Britain's continued links with the EU. We're recording this week's episode en route to the Gulf to celebrate with the newest member of the European Friendship Club. <laughs> and you thought AC Grayling was divisive. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky. To help make sense of the week, I'm joined by a few of our regulars. Ros Taylor is editor at LSE's Brexit blog. Welcome back, Ros. Hello. So the EU's negotiating mandate has been agreed, and it's big thumbs down to our old friend, chlorinated chicken. <laughs> Brussels won't sign a deal unless we rule out importing it, which might put a deal with the US at risk. Um, well, did we see that coming? Yeah, we did, oddly enough. Uh, and I don't know exactly how it's going to be resolved, but I have quite a strong intuition, which is that the National Farmers Union, for all its efforts to make sure that we maintain standards and do not let in chlorinated chicken and undercut British farmers, will end up losing the argument because it will be presented in the sort of court of public opinion as a as increasing the choice available to British consumers. And if we want shit chicken for, you know, one pound of chick, uh, chicken chicken, or whether we want, you know, fully free range organic chicken, that will be a choice that you will have. And thanks to Brexit, you can choose either. So that's good news, Ian. More choice, for, more choice for the consumer, regular chicken or creepy chicken. I mean, usually, at least on the show, I get like a proper introduction. This time it's like, and Ian Dunn, it's Eater Ian of <laughs> Shit Chicken. It's Ian, <laughs> Ian Dunn, author, editor of politics.co.uk and Eater of Shit Chicken. I actually, I mean, I do have space in my heart for cheap shit food, but um, in this case, I'll, I'll resist. I mean, there wasn't really much that was surprising in that whole thing. Was I mean, there was... We know what, we, we, you know, I guess at some point we're going to talk about the fish and, and Ireland. I mean, we saw the stuff on level playing field is, as we expected, which is on state aid. Um, it'll keep up and it will be non-regression on sort of environmental and on food. And I just can't, I mean, you see that the dynamics are, are where the problem is, right? Because all of the reason the EU asked for all this stuff is because they want trust. They want a sense of trust in what we're going to do that we're not going to undercut them. And yet the British government communication strategy is clearly to talk predominantly to a domestic audience trying to set up this, you know, this clash of saying, well, they've changed the deal and this is completely unreasonable. So you think, I mean, it, that is, it, you know, makes a kind of sense. But of course, what you're doing is consolidating the exact sort of instincts that the EU had that made them demand these conditions in the first place. So you look at it, the dynamics and you just think like, well, it's definitely going to go for a blow up very, very quick. I mean, possibly as early as even next week when they start talking to each other. They look, they look pretty distant at the moment. Well, Ian, you'll be pleased to know that you can say whatever you like this week because we've signed up to Toby Young's Big Talk Club. <laughs> we, have, we have a badge, sticker and pen. Are you going to go out to bat for me on social media when I get in trouble? Yeah. Oh, this is great. I'm going to leave him alone! <laughs> he can swear if he likes! <laughs> With Magna Carta die in vain! <laughs> 
Uh, also joining us this week is political sketch writer for The Independent, a job that seems both fun and soul-destroying at the same time. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> Top said of the new Attorney General, Suella Braverman, a lawyer who'll smash up the courts for political gain is hard to find. One well-qualified enough to be the stupid is even harder. <laughs> Tom Peck joins us. Hello, Tom. Hiya. So you wrote uh, a blistering farewell to Nigel Farage, MEP. Sadly, not a farewell to Nigel Farage. Uh, you do not get to write a farewell to Nigel no. Farage ever. <laughs> like trying to write a farewell to a condom in a toilet bowl. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going anywhere. But it was uh, like, Nigel Farage made his most recent exit from public life with the waving of a tiny plastic flag, which is all the man he ever was. Classless to the last, compassionless to the core. Now, I think that I remember reading sketch writers when I was younger, and it was it was a bit of a jolly lark and he was just poking fun at like sort of the way that John Prescott's talked or whatever. Um, do you think that your kind of uh, your profession has become sort of more morally outraged and disgusted? Yeah, I mean, it's a big problem. I mean, principally, you only become a sketch writer or you only really get involved in politics or political journalism like, like all of us in a way, because you are different from most of the population in the sense that actually you like politics and you can only like politics because at some point you've liked a politician. Maybe you've liked some American president who's found the right words at a key point in history. And so when I became uh, the indie sketchwriter in November 2015, my, I mean, I, it, it cracks me up that I that these words exited my gob and I may even have committed them to print, that I had some like doubts or reservations about doing it because the job is really just, you can, you can sort of glorify it all you like, but it is just taking the piss out of politicians. <laughs> And I'm somebody who likes politicians, admires politicians. That's why I became interested in politics like all of us. And I was genuinely like sort of conflicted about just spending my life just giving them a kicking every day. And oh my God, like I've been wrong about a lot of things. I've never, ever been more wrong about anything. The idea that I was concerned that it would be my job to just be mean about these people all the time. There, there has obviously been a complete shift in the quality of politician in this country and and it's not it is to do with brexit of course but what the what brexit is basically and you guys know all this obviously is it is simultaneously both parties losing at once like when a party loses it goes a bit mad so labor lost in 2015 it went mad the conservatives basically lost in 2016 either they lost the, the governing bit of the conservative party lost the referendum so you've got two losing parties who've both simultaneously gone mad at it simultaneously hmm. and in this sort of wall of just crapness the likes of me who has to sort of bring people down a little bit, you know, like take these powerful, important figures and bring them down a bit. They are like drilling themselves sub at subterranean <laughs> levels at, at breakneck speed into the very centre of the earth and beyond, you know, out waving at the Sydney Opera House. And, and I still got, and I still supposed to be like bringing them down. Well, you, you, you the, the sadness is that you're at a point where like, we all say this, all of the sketch writers, that you've essentially just been reduced to the role of transcriber. I mean, after, there's been so many times in the last few years where the funniest thing you can possibly do is just write down the events as they happened in order that day and type out the words that have been said and you cannot improve upon it there is nothing you can do there's no comedic finesse that can be that can be that, that can be used to sort of polish it up you just you just write down what's happened so who's give us one from one from the tory front bench and one from labor uh, the the best material or the just the most maddening human being which might the both be well, the same of, the, thing. of the current lot yes well i mean the conservative party has sort of changed to a certain extent since december but part of us well, part of me mourns for the days that ended with the general election because looking back the um 
chaos is there's a lot of mileage in that hmm. but what is better is that actually what's happened now is you have a government and a cabinet that has been handpicked for its crapness <laughs> like for for its for its the only criteria to get in the government now is to be willing and to be well basically be willing or to be sure to, to be to be venal enough or stupid enough to go along with this wildly damaging act so you're either Suella Braveman stupid enough or Matt Hancock venal enough <laughs> um, but that does give you plenty of opportunities because these I mean I was just at Prime Minister's questions just just now and before that uh, was the Wales office questions um, and you wonder and you're like oh my god that really is David T.C. Davies like walking WTF Gazan <laughs> At the dispatch box, as a, as a serving member of the government. And, and I mean, I can't even remember off the top of my head over the last three years some of the incredible things that he's done. One, one of which being having an argument on live TV while wearing a, a, a body camera. Do you remember? To, so that he could record people who were like sort of, I think, being anti-Brexit near him. Mm-hmm. And that guy's now in the government. And, and, and this is an obvious thing to say, but Priti Patel, eight years ago, went on Question Time and made demonstrably clear that she does not have the intellect to understand the arguments about the death penalty. And she's now Home Secretary. Like, if we were watching that happening in any country but our own, we would be, oh, my goodness. Well, we are, oh, my goodness, in our own country. But it it just, I mean, I'm making an obvious point, but it nevertheless just defies belief. And on the Labour bench, I mean, I've given you a long answer to the first part, so I'll just say two words, Richard Bergen. Thank you. (laughs) I I, I was teeing it up. I knew you'd say the, the one area in which Bergen is unbeatable. Are we, are we going to talk about the University of Tony Benn? Because I'd really... I'm very excited about that. that. It's got its own Twitter account now. It's really good. This week, we will talk to Tom about the ongoing circus in Westminster and cover in more detail the government's plans for a points-based immigration system. And Chinder Singh and Ben Ayres from Corner Shop will be joining us to talk about their new album, England is a Garden, and the points-based problems musicians will face because of Brexit. That's after a few reminders from Roz. Get your diaries out. We're announcing another live show in London and it's our first ever pod clash with our little sibling podcast, The Bunker. Join us on Thursday, 2nd of April for Romaniacs versus The Bunker at the Leicester Square Theatre, a show of two halves with a different panel and special guest in each half. In the blue and yellow corner for Romaniacs, the panel is Ian, Dorian and Naomi Smith, plus a special guest to be announced soon. And in the yellow and blue corner... Producer Andrew and I, plus special guests coming soon, will be representing for The Bunker. As they say on Thunderdrone, two podcast centre, one podcast leaves. Why is this all so aggressive? <laughs> Why can't it be more like collegiate? <laughs> it's just a bunch of great mates hanging out. <laughs> well, exactly. Patreon backers get advance notice and a discount, of course, and tickets are on general sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. If you want that discount too, why not sign up to back us on Patreon now? We might have left the EU, but Brexit is the gift that keeps on giving. And with your help, we'll keep on covering it. Search Patreon Romaniacs to find out how. And it's leicestersquaretheatre.com for Romaniacs versus The Bunker on Thursday, 2nd of April. Thanks, Roz. First this week, more fallout from the proposed new points-based immigration system where future residents of this country will be more tightly vetted than a former National Front candidate on Question Time. Potential immigrants will need to go over an income threshold, have a solid job offer and speak good English. There's a particular focus on immigrants with degrees in science, tech, engineering or maths. So Cummings can continue his mission to build his super squad of oddball brain wizards. (laughs) (laughs) Tom, does it 
look bad. A lot has been made of this, that, that both Sajid Javid and Priti Patel's parents wouldn't have been let in under these rules. Is the government sort of determined to uh, erase the importance of, of sort of immigrants in our story, even when it's re- their relatives? Well, loath as I am to give you a trite answer, it is sort of my job. And um, <laughs> the fact that Priti Patel's parents would not have been allowed in under this scheme is surely the most watertight defence of the scheme <laughs> that there could possibly be. The, the, the disappointment is that it's been introduced far too late. I mean, in much the same way that the coronavirus, deadly though it is, if it had just come in 2016, all this probably would have been fine. See, I think there's about three ways in which you just got us in a lot of fucking trouble. No, because we're members of the Big Talk Club. So we can say what we like. Which is £50 a year. I mean, how likely is it that the, the lower income threshold um, is sort of in place for emergencies is, is just going to be needed quite a lot because of the lack of, of homegrown workers to do these jobs? I mean, how much sort of... Uh, how many exceptions do you think they're going to end up making to this? Uh, I mean, I can only really refer you to a column by George, U- George Eustace, the, now the Environment Minister, in the Evening Standard last year, where before he was in the government, but his background is that he is a strawberry farmer. He, I don't know when he stopped running it, but he is a strawberry farmer by, by trade. And he made no bones about writing paragraph 234 in an opinion piece in the Evening Standard last year that any points-based immigration system will essentially be a disaster. There won't be... You know, we, you can't pretend that we don't need uh, low salary workers to do these jobs that are crucial to our with lots and lots of industries, particularly the you know, food, food and drink, which is you could, the, the importance of it can't be under understated. And I, I, I don't really know whether or not in the end these rules will have to be tweaked, because even now, years after Brexit, there is still a tendency for people like us. We can't we can't liberate ourselves from the compulsion to approach this stuff with common sense mm-hmm. and accept that common sense has long gone. All this stuff is obviously stupid, but the political has been trumping common sense for years. And I I, I don't know if in the end they'll realise that this is stupid and they'll change it because they should be realising that right now. Well, I thought that I read um, that immigration was becoming a, a sort of more low salience issue certainly you know since since the referendum um and the likes of matthew goodwin are, are very keen on telling us that um we're actually a less racist country despite what you know um. dave might say um now that's the, the the narratives seem to seem to clash there why is there this great need to act tough on on immigration if as we we're told it's less of an issue than it was no right now you could actually this is a good opportunity to try and change the terms of the debate. And if Boris Johnson was the guy that we've been told reliably, you know, by by all these sort of journalists, mostly at the Spectator, you know, this great liberal hero who just camouflages it well, and he's going to go. Now would be the time that you would do it. Like you've got you you've got a you're anyway going to end free movement just by definition of leaving the EU. So you've got a chance now to just put something forward. And of course they fucking could have, right? Even under a points-based system, they could have done that. Like you look at the way that a points-based system is supposed to work. Suppose you have the points. You come over and then you can look for work. It's not supposed to be there's a job offer and there's points. Mm. That's not what a fucking point-based system is. So you look, I mean, just to sort of back you up in the, in the like, 
don't keep on assuming the common sense will win out because it's just like they could have introduced a liberal system now even with leaving the EU and they did not they introduced an extremely tight system which will keep out a lot of people so they're clearly not interested in taking advantage of the situation as it is right now with the public where you can make that message where you can put that forward they're not going to do it they're not going to do it fucking later they're never going to do it because most of these guys are drenched in this culture of just like no you attack immigrants that's all they've known. And why should they know anything else? That's all I've seen my entire fucking life. You know, over and over, through New Labour, through the Conservatives, and of course through the outgoing Conservative administration, and through the Conservatives when they're in opposition from Michael Howard, that's all they know. So Boris Johnson isn't secretly a groovy liberal. No, it's strange, yeah. isn't it? I don't want to shock you. If you're trying to square the intellectual circle, which is hard, but the good main <laughs> argument would be that Brexit basically means that people who were dissatisfied about immigration got what they wanted or felt that symbolically they had got what they wanted and that therefore they could sit back and relax a bit now because it would all be all right and these Eastern Europeans would stop coming and we would have a points-based system, blah, blah, blah. And so it satisfied that need and that is why the salience of the issue has diminished. That is what uh, I believe, and I don't want to preempt him, uh, Professor Goodwin would say. So that's what they would... So essentially this is... Is what these people were banking on so yep. they were like we're going to be less racist for a little while yep. as long as you give us this otherwise well but it doesn't work of course, all in. the thing is that the this this phenomenon was happening before brexit it's not like brexit happens and then the salience goes down it's not just salience by the way it's also the number of people who think that immigration is, has been good for the country so it's not just how important yeah, yeah, they think it yeah. is it's their opinion on it as well and that's been happening from before. And I would suggest that's because people are more confident sort of on the liberal left of making the case that immigration is good. And actually, despite what you're told, you might as well just stop talking. You just sound like an elitist. Real people don't care. Despite what you're told, actually making the argument can change minds. I mean, this argument that has been doing the rounds for a few years, that actually the Brexit vote means there is that we are now more relaxed about immigration and it's sort of lanced the boil to a certain extent. I've only ever heard that argument advanced. I've heard it principally advanced by Michael Gove. And he is essentially, in my view, using it to sort of to justify or excuse the terrible lies, essentially, that were told, like the horrible vote leave propaganda mm -hmm. about um, the UK's new board really is with severe art, click here to save the NHS. And what they're essentially saying is that there has been almost an outbreak of, of good Samaritanism in this country, which there may very well have been. But the argument is only being advanced by the people who kick the guy in by the roadside in the first place, yeah. if you know what I mean, mm. it's like we, we're all very we, we all, we're all we're all very relaxed about immigration now, but it's almost as a sort of self-exculpating thing because because of the the litany of shit that was thrown their way four four years mm. ago, and whether or not it's true, I mean I don't really, I don't really know, but but it's being advanced by people who who gain because it excuses what they did. Now, I very, 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 very strongly believe that, that the stuff that Vote Leave got up to in the run-up to that vote should never be forgiven, should never be excused, should, should certainly never, ever, ever be forgotten. And this idea that actually we're all much more chilled out about immigration now is 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 the guy who kicked the beggar in pretending to be the good Samaritan. Mm -hmm. And I don't really stand for it at all. And of course, they've been doing this for fucking decades, right? I mean, Margaret Thatcher, after she did the speech on swamping, saying we've got to be able to show people that there will be an end to immigration. She basically went full, she went full on. 
made exactly the same point. I've defeated the National Front. That was in 1978, I think it was, when she made that case. David Blunkett, when he was running asylum and, t- and turned the asylum system into the, like one of the cruelest, most abject parts of even the fucking Home Office, which, which is impressive at the least. He used to make exactly the same arguments. If we don't do this, then you know we're going to get the BNP rising. Now you get the same with, if it's not us, it'll be Farage. Always, always the same thing. We've got to be anti-immigration or else the anti-immigration guys win. <laughs> it's just like, you must be able to see the flaw in your fucking argument. Maybe they enjoy giving the racists what they want. <laughs> <laughs> I think I genuinely think they do. Um, Roz, I noticed there was quite a lot of um, sort of confusion and disagreement about this phrase with low-skilled workers um, and sort of the implication, therefore, that they were sort of low-value. And obviously there are, there are, you know, very important jobs which require a great deal of skill. Yeah. Um, but it's not, in the language of economists, it's low-skilled because it's based on qualifications. Yeah. Would it be better if we just if there was kind of different language which enabled different very important skills uh, to be um, held up as as important as others? It would be, and to be fair to some economists, they are trying to do this when we're thinking about what the caring economy means and what it means to do work when you're not expecting a financial return. But fundamentally, this is down to a cognitive model that people have um, of work that anybody can do, which is care-based work, um, the kind of work that means that women stay at home looking after children because they can do it and the man often learns more and he goes out to work for that reason and there's brain work then which not everybody can do and so that deserves to be financially rewarded and it's more productive and there's more GDP and then there have been efforts to address this and I mean the fact that there are nursing degrees in nursing for example is an example of that now but you still have professions like the care uh, like carers where there are no formal qualifications needed to do that work and therefore it's under it, it it's underrated as you say in in uh, the way in the way economists think and we think of it as something that oh anybody could do it so it's less valuable and i think that is a huge problem that we need to get over and we've started to do it but it's uh, one of the reasons why this points-based system is so difficult because it means that you have to have a certain uh, you have to have a certain level of skills which is basically a level skills in order to meet the requirements for a job in order to get into the country so it doesn't matter that care workers are a shortage occupation and that there are lots and lots of vacancies that the fact that you don't need the qualifications to do it overrides that in the system at the moment and that's something that they're going to have to address quite urgently um and pretty patel uh, very popular on the show this week um <laughs> talks about sort of <coughs> galvanizing an army of eight million economically inactive people uh, which made me think of robert mm. wilson thrusting rifles into the hands of children at yeah. the end of jojo rabbit <laughs> um who are these economically I- inactive people? Why that phrase? Oh, well, you know, people like students, for God's sake. People who are caring for <laughs> caring for other people, whether they're kids or elderly people or disabled people. And you could, you know, bring these people into productive work, but then you would have to get somebody else to do the work that they are doing, to do the caring that they are doing, with the exception of students and so on, who... You can't get, but you have to do that. And then the question you've got to ask yourself is who would pay for that? And 
who then does the caring. And you're going to end up in a situation where you might be relieving these carers of their responsibilities, but then we're just paying somebody else to do the caring and there's already a shortage. And I don't know if Pretty Patel has thought about this in all its ramifications. <laughs> I don't think they're also going to have to pay people to write all the essays that the students aren't writing because they're picking strawberries. Yeah, yeah. well, that's the logic of it, yeah. <laughs> Only two people have featured on every single episode of Romaniacs since September 2017. <laughs> they first caught the attention of the music press in 1992 when they burned Morrissey posters in front of EMI's offices after he waved the Union Jack around Finsbury Park. He's famously mellowed out since then and everything's fine. They were Mercury Prize nominees in 1998 with When I Was Born for the Seventh Time, Home of Brimful of Asher, and their ninth album, England is a Garden, is out on the 6th of March. All of this, of course, pales in comparison to their greatest achievement, one of the greatest achievements of the 21st century so far, writing the theme song to Romaniac, Stephen as a monster. <laughs> Hello, Chinder Singh and Ben Ayers of Cornershot. Hello. Before we talk about the album, let's have a track. It's a Reclaim Offensive Language special uh, you probably won't hear on the radio. Chinder, tell us about this track. Um, everywhere that Wog Army Rome, yeah. it's... Uh, it's looking in the same vein that Lenin might have looked at when he said, uh, woman is the nigger of the world. And in those times, reggae was big and rasters were picked on a lot. Nowadays, rasters have been moved to, to Asians and that's where Western Oriental people come in. Every, everywhere that Every, everywhere that Every, everywhere that Wagami follow them They follow pretty and sing. They follow pretty and sing. They follow pretty and follow them taking you five years to make this album um starting in those happy days when people hadn't heard of brexit um yeah. how did events change it as it went along well i think we're quite a strange group in that respect because i'm from wolverhampton powellism was from wolverhampton so mm. i sort of grew up in the light of powellism or the darkness of powellism we've always been political and we've always thought that something like brexit might happen so we've always been political enough to try to avert those sort of things. When Brexit did come along, it it, it certainly informed the album. But we were all we were always informed in that direction mm. anyway. Because I remember when you when you came out in the early nineties, it was a time when the the sort of BMP were kind of making inroads, and the anti-Nazi League was kind of it was sort of revived and, and protests then. And Stephen Lawrence's murder was around that time. I remember being quite very fractious political sort of time. Um, and then it seemed that there was some sort of progress made. 
Do you feel more? Do you feel that we're kind of sliding back? In oh, the last few years? definitely. Yeah, without a doubt, it feels like we've really slipped backwards, and uh, a lot of lessons that were learnt have now been unlearnt. I don't know whether it's a generational thing or, for me, one of the biggest things about fighting Brexit was that you know, post-war Europe coming together to try and avert future wars was a really important thing. But now that the that generation that fought in the war seems to slowly be passing away and um, a lot of the lessons that they would tell you tell youngsters is, have been lost you know and forgotten are beginning to be forgotten again I think it's so dangerous you know and that combined with the rise of nationalism all across Europe is uh, it's just horrible so the points-based immigration system we were talking about that earlier um, the only musicians that get exemptions are violinists for orchestras has this government given up even the pretense of caring about pop music because we became quite accustomed with sort of Blair and Cameron and even Gordon Brown when he pretended he knew who the Arctic Monkeys were. There was a general sense that you recognize, you know, that the government recognized the importance of, you know, British sort of soft power and the, the music industry. Well, um, pop, pop music and, and the music industry is, is massively important for the hmm. economy, isn't it? It seems in- incredible that they're, they didn't bear that in mind with this whole process, you know, how it's going to be affected. Touring alone is going to be a nightmare for, for artists in Europe. Yeah, I think it's it shows how Trumpian the whole affair is. They don't really care. They just want to bulldoze things. The music industry is a good... It's always been a great example of what's happening with technology and marketing and other great things on the horizon. So it's always a good industry to look out for, to see what's going to happen. And if this is what their their starting stanza is, it's uh, it's pretty... Well, it's horrific. Are you, are you glad that you don't tour anymore and you're not going to have these... Uh... Um, Frustrations. Well, we stopped touring quite a long time ago, mm. but uh, yeah, <laughs> but we do ago, remember carnets, <laughs> and uh, we do remember getting dragged out of vans and beaten up and stuff like that. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> you keep a very straight face. <laughs> well, let's play Roots of Brexit uh, and go back to the <laughs> as we as we mentioned, you sort of burned uh, Morrissey's photo for the the enemy after his stunt in, in London. There's this sort of strand of, um, and at the time that was very controversial, the fact that he had a union jacket. It wasn't just you guys protesting. It was a big thing in the, in the music press. The idea that you, would, um, that you would brandish a union jack. There were skinheads in the audience as well. Mm. Um, but even the flag was very sort of toxic. And then, of course, it very quickly became completely normal. Um, so w- observing that process, I mean, what did you sort of make of that? Because it went from being quite sort of divisive to becoming... Very normalised and Jerry Halliwell's dress and Noel Gallagher's guitar. And there seemed to be a kind of like football's coming home version of, of sort of, you know, patriotism. And then the flags, the, the British flag and the, the, the English flag seems to have kind of, um, you know, got back some of that kind of like baleful, sort of threatening force they had. What did you make of that whole process? Were you suspicious even at the time when people were going, hey. Well, we didn't just look at one thing. We didn't just look at the London gig. We looked at his lyrics. We looked at the fact that he talked about other great things like vegetarianism, but didn't talk at all about racism. His Richard Allen uh, imagery. It was a whole catalogue of different things that we pieced together. It wasn't just one thing. It wasn't just his dodgy T-shirts. And earlier you talked about the 90s, and even with the flags after the Morrissey article, it was still a vibrant place to be in England. And in terms of multiculturalism and 
things moving on. I think the 90s, certainly from the mid-90s, started to be a, it was a brilliant place to live. More so now, because we look back at it, at what, what has been lost. Mm. And uh, we realise how, how lucky we were in the 90s. It, it, a lot of things came together. A lot of legislation came together. And a lot of people got on. And that obviously was uh, what Brexit was about, to, to stop all that. So do you think kind of a national identity is always a contested thing? Because if you look at, say, Stormzy at Glastonbury and he had that kind of Banksy flak jacket, which was like a black Union Jack, and that there are, of course, huge advertisements for kind of multiculturalism and more positive embracing kind of Britain at the same coexisting with a much more uh, isolationist, xenophobic vision. Do you think that England or Britain... It's, it's just something that you're always going to have to kind of... It's always about competing versions, sort of fighting with each other, and you're just trying to make the more positive one dominant. I think the negative has now become the dominant. It's not a depressing record, though. No, it's weird. It's like super up. Like when I put, I put it on this morning, I was just like, "This sounds like spring is happening right now." I was, I wasn't. I guess I was expecting it to be more morose. Like. In in a way, we've done politics, but we've not done it in a preachy way. We've always done it with with an air of of liking records and wanting people to listen to stuff, and not just for lyrics, but lots of different elements of production and and history of music. And uh, for some reason, we've always come across as. Uh, bit more cheery than other people would think <laughs> i think it's partly because a lot of the records that we we like um because we are music freaks at heart uh, are kind of quite up full if you like sort of to use a reggae phrase or or, or positive feeling and they, get, they have that sort of magic of um making you feel inspired or hopeful and um in a way we see that as the greatest kind of challenge to try and put that into our music and we've often talked about albums trying to have a summer feeling or a summer release or something like that that's, yeah, that's exactly how it felt. Good. Mm. <laughs> All is not lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can't state that firmly enough. All is not lost. Do not despair. Now it's time for our segment to the barricades. Each week, one of our panellists plugs a campaign for Romaniacs listeners to throw themselves into. And today it's Ian's turn. Yes, yes. Um, so this free speech uh, to be young thing um, doesn't look uh, particularly well thought through. Although, by the way, like for, for fucking comedy value, if you, the, the interview of him being asked, oh, how do you feel about fascists coming into your group and just being like, thought that one through very clearly you might want to think about it mate it might help lots of harry hill gases <laughs> oh, <laughs> ah, bit of a rum do ah not sure about wicked. Oh, nazism <laughs> ah i'll get back to you i wonder if nazism is over the line in some way i'm just waiting for them to, somebody to infiltrate the speakeasies in the pubs <laughs> and to hear them saying very naughty things about trans people and uh, what yeah. is going to be like when they bring back the recordings from those <laughs> Yeah, that would be that'll be interesting. That'll be good. I'll get some popcorn for that one. Um, so look, I mean, there are um, if you do care about free speech, and you should, and it's not wrong to say that there are major challenges with free speech at the moment on pretty much all the sides. Um, then there are organisations that you can join that already exist that do this job quite well. Now, I want to caveat that a bit because. I do actually think there is kind of a space for an organisation that does something a little bit different to what is happening at the moment. Um, you would need it to be clever about where it's going through. You also need it to be wise to the fact that, especially the alt-right, 
use freedom of speech in order to close people down by online pylons, by abusiveness, especially towards ethnic minorities and especially towards women. And if you're going to have any real care about free speech, that has to be in your calculation alongside the fact that lots of universities, lots of student unions do seem to have very, very little consideration for for what free speech entails. You need to try and keep all of this together in one go. And that requires some sophisticated thinking of which I I see very, very fucking little at the moment. However, there are organisations that are fighting for this stuff. So one of them is English Pen. If you're concerned about this stuff, you should be joining English Pen. You should give them money. They do good work. Another one is Index on Censorship. And Index on Censorship has had some moments where I haven't quite signed up to its judgment calls. But the overwhelming majority of the time, it does really good work on free speech, not just in this country, but in lots of countries where the, the consequences of exercising your free speech are considerably more severe than they are here. If you're... Uh, a fellow comics nerd, there's the comic book uh, Legal Defense Fund, which again sort of backs people out. So if you're looking at it and thinking, this is not a bad idea, I really wish someone <laughs> was, was doing a smarter job of it, I would go to those three organisations, give them a bit of money or give them your time. Well, they've got that sort of broad-based tradition that after the, the war, Orwell was part of uh, some Freedom Defense Committee, which was very sort of broad-based, mm-hmm. and it actually defended fascists, communists, anarchists, basically people who were still in prison under wartime legislation. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that now the war was over, they didn't need to be. And there were people that obviously nobody agreed with all of those people. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the point. And I think the problem with Toby Young's big talk is that it's purely spiked coffee mm-hmm. house people. I just don't think it can be credible unless you're, ri- you know, if they're going to the barricades for a trans activist or a, you know, a Muslim activist, um, then you would believe them. Mm-hmm. But it's just that, that reduction of a really important principle to, to a sort of self-serving publicity stunt. Well, you also... Because uh, I, I don't question Sorry. his commitment to this stuff. I don't question it at all. I, I do. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you, I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. I'm totally... No, no, I, I definitely got yeah. that impression. <laughs> like, um, but like, you still want someone who isn't going to alienate you know, two thirds or three quarters of the British political sort of community. You want someone who, who you might genuinely think, okay, this guy's going to give a... The, the kind of example, that it'd be like, for the immigration world, it's like, it's like someone like Cinder Cutwiler, which, which you generally think like, okay, fine, lots of people disagree, but they sort of recognise this as someone who's striving to, to sort of put a proper point across. You have someone like that for free speech. I think there is room for an organisation to do this and there's room to give people defence when they are being shut down online. There is room for this. This isn't going to be the organisation. So until it is, you might as well go support those organisations that do do good work. So this is our guest this week, Tom Peck, political sketch writer for The Independent, culture war pacifist. (laughs) Um, So Parliament, when Parliament was constantly in, in turmoil and the journalist village on College Green... Was it was a permanent fixture? Um, how much pleasure did you did you take in that? Because almost as a journalist, you could oh my god, there's always something going on. But it, it also seemed to be kind of thoroughly exhausting. So now we're in this weird post-election period where a lot less is happening. Um, are you relieved? Do you miss the kind of it's eleven o'clock? What's the new latest drama? I mean, I certainly take. I took absolutely no pleasure at all from the thoroughly depressing scenes day after day after day outside Parliament. Um, they were horrendous. I mean, I, I used to occasionally wander out. The thing is, if you work in Westminster, quite often you come off the train, 
you go up to your little ivory tower and then you go out again through the specialist exit and you can spend a whole week through without actually even encountering that stuff on College Green. And on the rare occasion that I did, I would come back into my onto my uh, to my desk um, with ge- like genuine despair, like oh my god, this country is buggered, and I don't know how mm. it's ever going to be repaired. People shouting the word traitor in each other's faces. I mean, it was it was terrible, um, and I'm very 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 pleased that that has come to an end, even if it means we will have a more damaging Brexit than we need to have. But a stable government is in some way a good thing and a, and a stable government will be held to account for its actions, hopefully by a more credible opposition than the one that we've had for the last four years. Um, I took no pleasure at all from from the the public aspect of that chaos and, and, the, mm. and also the commercialisation of it, the, the people like pressing their iPhones into Anna Subri's face just to essentially make money, by the way. That's all that's going on there is, is to monetise their YouTube feeds. It was grim. It was one of the most depressing, up there with the most depressing things I've ever seen and it, don't want to sound too pompous, but it probably did affect me in some way. I found it horrendous. Um, we had but, John uh, Grace from the Guardian said something very similar. He said, did he? He said that yeah. it really kind of it really caused um, you know yeah because it's a spell every, of depression. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I I don't I wouldn't wish to sort of cheapen those the, those problems. Because sure, I, would, sure. I wouldn't describe that as what happened to me. But um, I'm very, very, very relieved that to a certain extent that that's over, even if the end result is not ideal but we now have a more stable government things will return slightly to normal if you like um a functioning opposition but there was obviously going to be a price to pay which is the really 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 terrible outcome for our country that we've ended up with and i don't i do think that we're not you know people talk about this decision that was made in 2016 as a a once in a generation decision but life moves much quicker now than it used to and i don't think it should be in any way discounted that this decision could be reversed quite quickly. Like the last one took forty-three years. There's no reason to think it would it will take as long as that again. I mean, I, I really, really do think that young young people don't want it. Young people do replace old people at quite quick, quite breakneck speed. There's no reason to think that we're stuck with it. Um, but your specific question, which is more about like where. <laughs> Well, are things better now? Or? No, I was just no. I mean, you've, you've answered it because I was just I was just intrigued by I suppose that kind of the the sort of emotional psychological dimension of that. Where obviously it's great copy, yeah. And yet was, to was, live through that, it was well. I mean, I do miss. I suppose the way that you asked it was to do with the the shit on College Green, which I took no pleasure from. <laughs> yeah. But certainly the actual the chaotic aspect of politics that that went on for a long time probably. We now we now realise that we do miss because it's I mean it was just glorious at times. I mean there when when I mean I can't even remember, there were so many of them. Sometimes I read back through some of my old sketches because I'm, I'm like putting a book together and you're like oh my god I've forgotten that that ever even happened. Like that was that was absolutely nuts. When um when um yeah when Steve Barclay proposed this motion to the House and then voted against it mm-hmm. and you've got the whip chasing them around the Commons like the Benny Hill show. I mean I mean that 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 was that was stuff that was absolutely glorious and and. It's definitely more stable and more and more boring now. But but what's better is that there are there's a few new characters in the sitcom, if you like, and some of them are going to be some of them are going to be good copies. Who's good in the new intake? Well, I didn't say good, but who who is intriguing from a sketch writer's <laughs> point of view? Um, well, we sort of already talked about this, but certainly the fact that they are all handpicked for their willingness to go along with something that's so cos- cosmically stupid is will will provide mileage in the years and and months to come. Suella Braveman is one to is certainly one to cling on to because she thinks she's going to take the fight to 
this in, in the independent judiciary and like like lots of people in the in the cabinet they are they have the confidence of people that are entirely unaware of their own dimness and will never really be able to cotton onto it um they'll always be good value for money um but there won't there won't be the sort of the, the knife edge votes and the absolute sense of like mm. oh my god this is a this is a the wheels are off the bus here the wheels are on the bus it's just it's a very bad bus well there was a huge sort of clear out of mps not not so much even people losing their seats but people who just kind of um resigned or uh, resigned the whip and essentially kind of guaranteed that they were going to lose their seats um which of those people did you i know the sketchwriter's job is not generally admiration but which of those do you do you miss do you think actually did give you some sort of restore your fondness for politicians yeah well I, I only came in in november 2015 so i have only known the crack cocaine years like i've never known <laughs> i've never known normality if you like um and although there were some normal people about they had both of them on, on both sides had essentially been purged not, not purged of power not not purged of in the sense that they weren't in the house of commons anymore so i've only really known two extraordinarily low-grade front benches stacked up against one another. But, of course, there were some sane people around, like David Gork and Dominic Grieve and Kenneth Clark. But, obviously, now the buy-in price to be a Tory MP is to go along with all this. So that has been a great purging of common sense. I mean, one of the things that I had to, I had to write about um, when the new cabinet was announced, and there was a lot of talk about the fact that there weren't enough women in it, and there clearly aren't enough women in it. But of course, in politics, the point to which a prime minister is picking his cabinet, that is already sort of long past the sexist bottleneck, if you like, like you can mm -hmm. only really pick pick from what's there. And I think the absolute purging of common sense and, and, and it resulting in the, the, the buy-in price to be a Tory MP is to either be stupid enough or venal enough to go along with this. I suspect that that purge uh, affected, possibly affected women more than men. But that's just sort of some amateur, probably sexist psychology for you. <laughs> you. You've written about how the word racist shouldn't be applied lightly, but should be applied to Boris Johnson. Um, he seems so immune from criticism for doing and saying things like that, and indeed for, for lying. Um, is he Trump-like in that respect? I mean, how can journalists, journalists... It's not like journalists don't point this stuff out, but he got a walloping election victory. How do you make that stuff matter and and does it despite the victory does the victory say more about corbyn's unpopularity and do you think that some of this does actually stick to johnson and he's just not actually that popular i wish i had a good answer to that question but the only one is a howl of despair really i mean it it goes back to i mean i, I spent most of 2016 saying that i thought donald trump would win the election and then i changed my mind after the grab by the pussy tape mm. i thought that would mm. finish him off and it didn't um and much in the same way here there no no one really this stuff doesn't really doesn't the, the killer blows don't land i mean there's like i mean i i watched the video of the, the the last fury wilder fight on saturday where fury is completely knocked out and then on the on the nine count almost like something out of wwf he just stands up and he's fine again and and politics is is a little bit like that i think possibly um this is a slightly slightly tangential answer but one of the things i would encourage anybody to do is because I had to watch a Bruges group event, um, the, it turns out the only way to watch it is to join the Bruges group on Facebook, which I then did. And this was about a year ago, and I'm now still a member. And if you want to understand 
how politics is really currently working, it doesn't matter what your views are, my strongest bit of advice is to sign up to and keep yourself exposed to the other extreme because everything is in such filter bubbles now that you can't, we can't possibly understand how we can keep pointing this out, how we can keep saying Boris Johnson is racist, how we can keep doing X, Y, and Z, and it doesn't matter. The closest you can get to trying to understand why this is happening is to make sure you do keep your head underwater in the in the other world because it's completely hermetically sealed. Um, and the, the, the people, the, the facts are, on, are, are all this stuff about, you know, there's no shared set of facts anymore and blah, 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 blah. But I, I, I can't tell you why none of this stuff lands. It just doesn't. And that is the new world that we live in. And it's mainly due to social media. And finally, I mean, I know that kind of satirists, sketch writers, journalists generally um, uh, are, not, are not particularly sort of, uh, don't have a particularly inflated idea of their, their importance in the world. But as we're looking at five years of Tory government, five years of however the Brexit process unfolds, what do you feel that is your sort of service to the reader is? What do you think you can you can do with your work? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I think I've given an answer to that in the previous one about the fact that we're just howling into the void and not changing anything. About that, you can continually call out Boris Johnson for calling out Boris Johnson for what he is and it not making. Any but do you difference? think the humour itself is is serves a purpose that it's sort of cathartic that there are just certain sort of sometimes just to see that feeling your own howling expressed on the page in a witty way in the old days you you have a bit of humor in the newspaper and then that's why people will buy it and then a lot of people pick up a newspaper and they turn to the sketch first so that you're you're providing a service in terms of getting the hard news in front of people's eyeballs as well now people just sort of meander through this constant digital forest and there there is something to be said for humor because people because people do seek it out and i definitely in the old days a sketch would just go down the side of the main news and you almost wouldn't even have to need to explain what the news was really whereas now everything has to be a fragment that sort of stands on its own mm. two feet mm. and i do try and provide a little bit of analysis or commentary or or something uh otherwise i don't think it's really doing anything apart from you know apart from a few lols and if your job is to just provide lols then you are not going to outsmart the collective wit of mankind as expressed on social media because you, know, you just never will anyone can do a funny gag and then suddenly it's got twenty thousand retweets mm. and that's who you're that's who you're fighting against and it's a losing battle so you have to really try and provide something of value as well as as well as um the lols basically <laughs> Well, we've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for our Brexit bridge, where every brick represents a value that helps us rebuild our links to Europe. Tom Peck, here's your forklift keys and a thermos <laughs> full of sugary tea. Um, what's your choice? It is, and I only became aware of the existence of this a couple of weeks ago. It is English French sparkling wine. Mm, now, <laughs> that's a fucking good choice. Yeah. Now, um, when I sort of thought that I would say what this was, it I suddenly started sounding in my head a lot like very irritating Boris Johnson style shtick, but I'm going to have to stick with it, <laughs> which is that I went to um, uh, the, a winery in Kent a few weeks ago for, on, a, on, a, on a tour. And it's quite dispiriting in a way because they, they, they you, you get people like me going on these wine tours and then you have a person from the English wine industry explaining to you that the two things they absolutely love are Brexit and climate change. And then everyone sort of looks at the walls <laughs> with a sense of despair. <laughs> But um, it turns out that in Kent, the soil profile is identical to the soil profile in Champagne. It's the same. It's the same bank of soil. What Champagne has is the weather. Um, But in 10, 12 years, we'll have the weather 
we'll have champagne's weather essentially. Mm-hmm. So so what? So it turns out you think this would be great news for the English wine industry, which it is. But the key plots have already been bought by Tattinger, Verve Clico, oh um, uh, Bollinger. <laughs> so, but this is a good thing. So so when, and I do mean when, we do we rejoin the EU, which will maybe be 10, 15, 20 years time, the best wine in the world will be French English sparkling wine. And that is what we shall toast it with. That's good. Oh, superb. I mean, in the background of what you just said, <laughs> there is climate change and the death of the planet. I suppose. I was trying to shelve that and just enjoy the <laughs> delicious fizz. <laughs> this week's foreign language clip is in French from Alice Antoine Gregoire. Les carottes sont cuites. And that means the carrots are cooked, which means game over, and you can serve them with some delicious French English champagne. <laughs> not champagne. Not allowed to call it that. Oh, <laughs> Kent. Um, <laughs> If you've got a clip to share, record something short and sweet and send it to info at romaniacs.com. That's the end of this week's show. Many thanks to Tom Peck. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thanks to Chinder and Ben from Corner Shop. You're donating the proceeds from your album launch to Detention Action. Tell us more about that. Uh, well, it was, it was a thought that we uh, could do something quite simply. It's a great cause. Money is required to help with... Uh, with legal action and to also put the plight forward to the public as well because it's uh, it hasn't gone away and it doesn't look like it's going to go away. Hmm. Cool. Thanks for coming in. England is a Garden is out on March the 6th. Don't forget to send in your questions for our special Ask Romaniacs episode for Patreon backers. We're recording in two parts. There's still time to submit yours for next week. Time for our theme song, Demon is a Monster, from a band that needs no introduction. And some thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello, this is Tijinder here, and thanks on behalf of Romaniacs 2, Andrew McTavish, Richard Lowe, Philip Rollison, Rick Harrison, Phil, and Todd Tobias. Hello, this is Ben from Corner Shop, and I'd like to say thanks to Alison Edmondson, Pinky, Alexandra Shirley, Melissa Sultana, Julie Lewis, and Alan Wood. Hello, hello from me to Ian Hutchinson, Ruth Harrison, Rob Fairhead, Lance Palmer, Gerald Greenwood, and Ross McMinn. Hello from me to James Alston, Rich H, Sarah Vaughan, Judy Gannon, Laura Giles, and Ed Churchman. And finally, thanks for me to Thomas Nichols, Neil Ferguson, Andy Reynolds, Daniel Thompson, Anne Heatley, and Jane Skinner. We'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunn and Ross Taylor. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.